Oh, good morning. Just let me say thank you for your prayers. I know you, many of you tell me you pray for me in preaching preparation, and I really do appreciate that. All right, join with me now. Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to be here today to hear your word, to sing praises unto you, and to enjoy the, the fellowship that we have with one another because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We gather in his name, we gather for his glory. Lord, I pray today that as the gospel goes out into all the world, that many hearts will be convicted by the Holy Spirit and that they would realize that their only hope is in Christ. And as they give themselves to you, Lord, seeking the forgiveness of sin, God, I know that you have promised that your word will, will come to them through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to sanctify their life, to make them more and more like Christ. And sometimes, Lord, in that process, we fight against you. We realize, Lord, that the opposition really is, even though it may come in form of another per person or circumstances, much of the opposition comes from an unseen enemy. So, Lord, help us to, to be aware that we are in a spiritual battle and that we are to put on the full armor of God. Help us, Lord, to call upon you in the day of our trouble. We know, Lord, you'll never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you, Father, for your abundant gifts to us each and every day in so many different ways. And I pray, God, that we would always be a thankful people. And now, Lord, I pray your word will give us, Lord, just the insight into your character and what you require of us. Help us, Father, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that you may exalt us in due time, and that, Lord, we can be a living testimony to other people of the grace and the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. I pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, this is message number four in our series on discerning the will of God. The, the first message was on the God who has spoken. If you have not heard that, I would encourage you to go back. Then uh, the next message was on what we can learn from the Old Testament and the means in which God chose to reveal himself to people in the Old Testament, primarily the prophets. And then last week was a tough one, God's sovereign will. I could, there's much more that could be said about that, but we had to limit it. And now today, message number four, the prescriptive will of God, which we can also call the revealed will of God or the moral will of God. And this is actually a pretty easy one for us to understand. Now, when I first became pastor here a couple of decades ago, I read a book that had a, that had a, a big influence on me and my thinking at that time. And this was the book, Faith Misguided, Exposing the Dangers of Mysticism. The foreword was written by Norm Geisler, apologist. And this was published in 1988. It's no longer in print. You can get it on Amazon for $138. I'll sell you my copy for $100, and I'll even sign it for you if you want it. But in the foreword to the book, here is what Norm Geisler, who is now with the Lord, great apologist, here's what he said. A mystical maze has settled on our land. Fuzzy thinking is the order of the day. The good ship evangelicalism is sailing without rational rudders in the hazy sea of subjectivity. Into this fog, Arthur Johnson's book comes as a beacon in the night. It is a call for sanity and rationality in a day that has largely forgotten both. 
And I have to tell you, I mean, that impressed me when I read it. Still impresses me when I reread it. Things have not gotten any better since that book was written. You are very well familiar with Isaiah, the prophet. Chapter 1, verse 18, you should probably memorize this verse if you hasn't, haven't. But Isaiah said, come now and let us what? Reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, because God is a forgiving God. But in Strong's Concordance, he says concerning the phrase, reason together, it means to judge, to plead, or literally, to reason together. And that is what I am attempting to do in this series. And the standard for our reasoning in everything that we do and think in Christianity must be the Holy Scriptures. We have no other standard, pure standard. So today I'm going to be talking about the prescriptive will of God, what he requires of his creatures made in his image. And I thought it would be good to start with one of the basic arguments for God's existence, that being the argument known as the moral argument for the existence of God. From the record of human history, people all over the world recognize some form of moral code that they live by, however simple or however complex it is. So the argument states that all people have an instinctive sense of what is right and wrong. Even remote tribes which have limited contact with the outside world still have some sense of morality, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable within the clan or the tribe. The argument claims that all people have this sense of what is right and wrong, and such a sense must have come from someone or something outside of themselves. So here's the picture that's up there on the moral argument for the existence of God. And you can find this all over the internet. If God does not exist, objective values and duties do not exist. You, in a sense, are your own authority. Objective moral values and duties across the world, even in the remotest tribes, do exist. We find these, these law codes. Therefore, God exists. There was an, origin, an originator of what is right and what is wrong. Now, if you look in the scriptures in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, Paul condemns both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had the law and they didn't obey it. But in Romans 2.14, he says this, When the Gentiles, which do not have the law, that is the written code, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So God says here that there is a law written in the heart of man, that we call this the conscience, and it bears witness, it bears witness, accusing us or excusing us in our behavior. Now, the Greek word for conscience, sanidesis, it literally means to possess co-knowledge of something, resulting in one sense of guiltiness before God. It would be, I think, uniformly agreed by theists, those who believe in God, and non-theists, those who don't, it would be uniformly agreed by them That torturing people for pleasure is wrong. You would hope so, right? But there are sadists and serial killers 
and people like Hitler and Stalin who did those things. How do they get that way? How does a person become a psychopath, a serial killer, a sociopath? Romans 128 says this, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, prior to this, it says that God gave a witness in the heavens, what we call general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. They rejected that witness. And it says because they did not acknowledge God in the the light that was available to them in creation, God gave them up. God gave them up to a depraved mind to do things that are not proper. People having, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Sounded like the world today, right? Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, lacking common human decency, and unmerciful. That's the result of a depraved mind that refuses to acknowledge God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 Now the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly or clearly that in the latter times, which began back then at the time of this writing, some will depart from the faith, apostatize, giving heed to notice seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, teachings of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, and I draw your attention to the next couple of words, having their conscience which is the candle of the soul that God has put in a human being, having their conscience seared, cauterized is the word, with a hot iron. Now, if you cauterize something, you kill the nerve endings. So it's possible for a person to reach a state in which they have no spiritual nerve endings, no natural conscience, They don't feel remorse. They don't feel guilt for their actions. They become psychopaths, sociopaths, serial killers, mass murderers. The Fawcett Bible Dictionary explained this idea of cauterization as a hardened determination to resist every spiritual impression. Their spiritual nerve endings are are gone. The pulpit commentary said it is the gradual deterioration of sensibility produced by habitual sin. And here is the danger of habitual sin. Sin that goes unrepentant. 1 Timothy 1.15 Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned or a sincere faith from which some have swerved, have turned aside, which means wandered away. Unto vain jangling, King James has it, it's fruitless discussions. I hate fruitless discussions. That's why I'm not a big fan of talk radio. Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened, cauterized, become spiritually insensitive to God and the witness of the Holy Spirit by what? The deceitfulness of sin. Who's the deceiver? So where is this all coming from? Satan. But here's my point. Habitual sin, unconfessed, will lead you off the path of truth. You will wander away. That's what the scripture says. And you can become hardened, and you can have a dead conscience conscience by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So the conscience is a guide, and I've said this to you many times, it is not a reliable guide, though. You can't depend on it. You can't trust it. This is why ethics, what we call ethics, right and wrong, divorced from revelation from God, is not sufficient for a truly just and righteous society. It won't work. So Paul Corbin, quoting philosopher John Rist, there is a widely admitted to be a crisis in contemporary Western debate about ethical foundations. Morality. It seems that ultimately the crisis is the result of approaching ethics without reference to God. When morality is severed from its theological roots, secular ethics cannot sustain itself. It withers and dies. That is why 50% of Americans believe a woman has a right to her own body, irrespective of the life of the human being in her womb. This is why 70% of Americans think gay marriage is okay. You've all heard of moral relativism? Moral relativism is the idea that there is no universal or absolute set of moral principles. It's a version of morality that advocates to each her own, its own. Ah, uh, whatever you think, whatever he thinks, whatever I think. And those who follow it say, who am I to judge? But they judge others who make righteous judgments. Right? I mean, it's totally inconsistent. You can't live according to moral relativism. But I want you to know this. Moral relativism is the prevailing view of Generation Z. Generation Z are those born between 1999 and 2015. So let's say 2000 to 2015. Generation Z. Did you know that in Generation Z, since, since the last 15 years, atheism, atheism has doubled? Doubled. And did you know that amongst this group, born between the year 2000 and 2015, only 4% hold what we would call a biblical worldview? You know why it's so hard? Now you know why it's so hard to reach the younger generation with the Word of God. They just reject it. America and American Christianity desperately needs to return to the Word of God as a source of divinely inspired, objective truth to lead our lives and in our decision-making. The Scripture, and not popular opinion, or our experience, subjective experience, must be the final criterion for truth. And I cannot emphasize that enough. We know, we must know what God has told us to do and not to do in his word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, apply those truths to our lives. That's our only hope. That's the only hope for any man. That's the only hope for any, for any country to continue to stand. Otherwise, the moral decay will totally destroy it. It's just a matter of time. And listen, listen, folks, we are well on that path in America. And no politician riding a white horse is going to come in and save us. We're crumbling from within. The prescriptive will of God involves precepts or commands which men may receive or reject. We also know that the prescriptive will of God is not elusive. People think, well, what's the will of God? What, you know, they debate this, and I've already talked about all the means that people go about trying to ascertain God's will for their life. There's no debate over the moral will of God. None at all. Ephesians 5.15 says, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, Redeeming the time, that means make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Wherefore, do not be unwise, Ephesians 5.17, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. 
We don't have to be in the dark. We can understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 1.9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you would be filled, notice, with the knowledge of his will. It's not elusive. God says he wants us to know what his will is in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And he's given to that, given it, giving us that in his word. And then it says in Colossians 1.10, to this end, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, that's pleasing God, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what God's will is for your life and my life, that we would live a life that is pleasing to him, that we would, we would do so in every area of our life, that we would do good works and that we would increase in the knowledge of God. Christians cannot walk in a manner that is worthy or suitably as believers should to please God unless they are fully equipped with the knowledge of his will. And that's what that word says, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, Colossians 1.9, means fully equipped, filled, overflowing with the knowledge of God's will, not his hidden sovereign will, but his prescriptive prescriptive will, the will that he has revealed to us, his moral will for our life. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, okay, growth. There's nothing more frustrating to a pastor than to see people stumbling over the same objects. I mean, if, that's, if there's anything that will drive me away from the ministry, that would be it. You know, growth, God expects growth in our life, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he points them back to the word of God. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God. Mark it down. It's not elusive your sanctification. You know what that means? Being set apart further and further from the world, being set apart further and further from your old self, the way you once lived, growing in holiness, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Thus, does that describe your life? Or are you still living in the past? The old self. Carrying out the, the, the lust of the sinful nature. Growth in holiness. Nothing can be clearer than this. God's will for us is that we grow in the likeness of our Savior. Who came to redeem us from our sin. And to transform us. By the renewing of the mind which comes through the Holy Scriptures and, and given to us the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts to make those Scriptures come alive and to, to help us to do the things that we cannot in our own flesh do, and I can't do them either. If you try to live the Christian life on your own strength, you will utterly fail. You cannot do it. You cannot do it divorced from God's Word and God's Spirit. Now, let me just say this as we talk about the prescriptive will of God. Christians must learn to distinguish, and this is basic Bible interpretation. Christians must learn to distinguish between what the Bible prescribes and what the Bible describes. Those two things. Prescriptive tests, texts are commanded positively. They're the do's, and negatively, the, the prohibitions do not. Turn 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. So here are some prescript, 
questions for you. This is the moral will of God. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Right? Don't seek revenge. Don't go tit for tat with anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for you, you, yourselves, and for everyone else. Be the peacemaker. It's not hard, is it? Rejoice always. That's a command. Pray without ceasing. That's another command. In everything, give thanks. That's another command. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But it doesn't end there. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In these couple of verses, ten commands. Don'ts and do's. Ten commands. We have in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, what theologians call the moral decalogue. The Ten Commandments. Now, I have to, I have to mention this when you think about prescriptive commands. Many commands in the scripture that we read, they're not all for us. They're limited they're limited by the historical and cultural context. So this is why you have to read the Bible carefully. Context, context, context. Those are the first three rules of good biblical interpretation. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, anybody build a new house here lately? You can't afford it. I mean, you pay a million dollars for a house that's 40 years old. If you build a new house, though, you must construct a guardrail around your roof. All right, would you do that? To avoid being culpable in the event that someone should fall from it. That's the New English translation. I haven't seen any roofs with guardrails around them lately. But in ancient time, you know what people did? They slept on the roof. It was nice and cool, windy. And they would also put their dry goods out on the on the roof to dry out and things like that. And probably some people used it for storage, a storage facility. Rahab the harlot hid the Israelite spies, the Bible says, among the stalks of flax that she had stored on her roof. Now, I don't know anyone who does that today, stores things on their roof. But what are you going to do when your garage is full, right? You're going to build a bigger garage, right? A bigger barn. So what you have is the general principle in the Old Testament in texts like this, and there are many of them, of avoiding liability. And that has a, many present-day applications. Make sure you have good tires on your car. Ah, some of you are thinking, I need new tires. Right? Make sure your brakes are operating well. Liability. Cover your swimming pool when you are not present, out of town, or whatever it is. So, in the Westminster Confession, they, they stated something concerning what they call general equity. General equity means that the judicial laws that applied under the Old Testament, Israel, do not apply in the exact same way that they do today. We don't build guardrails on our roofs. But their moral equivalent applies today. You have liability, and you have to make sure that, that you take care of the things that would cause someone to, to bring a case against you, civil or criminal, because you, you fail to maintain your vehicle properly or whatever else it is. So there's many prescriptive events. Descriptive events are telling us, prescriptive commands, descriptive, descriptive events are telling us what happened in a given context without necessarily giving a command or instructing us presently to do the same thing. It's just describing an event as it happened. It's not telling us that we're to follow this as a pattern for our life. I'll give you an example in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost 
had fully come, they were all in with one accord in one place. Jesus had told them to what? To tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they were endued from, with power from on high. So notice the description here. This is a very descriptive event. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided or cloven tongues as a fire and sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is describing a supernatural event inaugurating the birth of the church. We should not expect it to be normative. It never happened like this ever again. Believers are not commanded to seek a second baptism of the Holy Spirit after salvation characterized by speaking in tongues, miracles, or other sign gifts. This is a descriptive event. If you read on further in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Acts 2, 42, this is describing the early church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, we do that today, but we don't do it the exact same way. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That's not happening today, because we don't have any apostles. Now, all who believed were together and all had things in common. We don't do that today. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided, divided them among them as everyone had need. We don't do that today. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking the bread from house to house, nobody does that today. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper every day in different believers' houses. And they, and they ate food with gladness in simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Descriptive event of the manner of worship in the life of the early church, following the coming of the Holy Spirit, according to the promise of, of Jesus. You're all familiar with Gideon? Because, you know, people, Jesus says this, an adulterous generation seeketh a sign. And the Jews you know that they there there were people in that day who wanted a sign, and they came to Jesus. You know, you know, give us a sign, give us a sign. You know, what what sign did he give them? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. Right? It was a sign of judgment on them. But Gideon, one of the judges, remember the cycle of judges: Israel would fall into sin cry out to God for repentance. God would send the deliverer, a judge who would come and deliver them. And then, then as things got better, what did they do? Fell back into sin. Same old ways. Cry out to God again for repentance. God sends a deliverer and the cycles repeated called the cycle of judges. Well, God came at a time in Israel, when again, they were in the midst of the cycle, the Midianites were conquering them, harassing them, stealing from them, and they needed deliverance. So in Judges chapter 6, turn there for a moment, Judges chapter 6. I'm going to get into the sign aspect of this a little bit more, but not in this message. And I, I just kind of, you have to chuckle at this, really, when you read this here. But in Judges chapter 6, I'll just fast forward to verse 11. God is going to choose his man to deliver them. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. He was hidden away, 
in order to hide the wheat from the Midianites, because they had come in and steal it. They were marauding bands. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. He wasn't expecting anything. It was just an ordinary day, going about his, his work. And the angel of the Lord said to him, The Lord is with you, might, you mighty man of valor. Notice what Gideon says. This is so human-like. This is so much like us. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why is everything happening to us? How many people ask that question? If you're with us, why am I in this mess? Why am I having financial troubles? Why am I having marital troubles? Why is my kid going astray? Where are all the miracles that the fathers told us about? If you're with us, why aren't you doing miracles? That the fathers told, about, told us about. Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. How many people feel that way? And if they stay in that trend of thought, you know what they'll do? They'll forsake God. And now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And this even gets better. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? I do not make mistakes. You're my man. So he said to him, Oh, my Lord. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the weakest link. I should be out of here. But you know what the Bible says? God uses the foolish to confound the prideful, and he uses the weak to confound the mighty. He loves to do that. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you will defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign. All right. I'm still not convinced. I'm still not convinced. Show me a sign. Jump to verse 36. Gideon said unto God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm going to put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon the earth, besides this, I would know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So that's sign one that he wants. You go to verse 39, Gibeon said unto God, don't be angry, you know. Don't be, don't be furious against me. And I will speak. But this once or this last time, let me prove, I pray thee. I want another sign. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece and upon all the ground. Let there be dew. The exact opposite of what happened with sign number one. So many people use this as a basis for seeking signs from God. And we'll get into that, as I said earlier. But there is no command anywhere in Scripture to seek supernatural signs from God like Gideon did. None. Absolutely done. My point is this. This is a descriptive event. It's not a prescriptive event. It's not giving us a pattern for us to do. Maybe a different kind of a sign. And I've already talked to you. How many people want signs from God? And then they get the signs, they think they're, they're from God, and they don't quite know how to interpret them. The Bible is full of prescriptive commands that carry consequences when they are violated. We, we, all, we all know that just from reading the Scripture. All, it goes all back to Genesis 2.14. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat. For in the day that you will eat of it, dying you will surely die, is the, the Hebrew interpretation. In other words, the process of death will begin. 
in you and in all in, in all of creation. Break this command and you're going to wreak havoc on yourself and upon humanity. What did we read in Isaiah 1? Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though you be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient. The next verse. You will eat of the good of the land. That is great. Wonderful promise. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You have choices to make. God gave you libertarian free will. A mind to reason, to think. To think about the consequences of your actions. Young people. You will have consequences for your actions. Throughout all of your life. It doesn't end when you get older. Deuteronomy 30.19 I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death. Some, some choices people make are life and death choices. A person who chooses to take some drugs laced with fentanyl can die because of that choice. And many of them are doing it. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. I love this verse. Choose life. Choose the right thing that both you and your descendants may live. I can tell you this. The choice you're contemplating making divorce from the word of God is the wrong choice. It will always be the wrong choice. You know, there are hundreds of commandments in the New Testament. We talk about the Old Testament law. There's probably nearly 1,000 commands in the New Testament in one form or another. Now, we have to learn which ones are directly applicable to us. Believers are never to marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Right? That's pretty clear. You can put a yoke on two oxen, but you can't get it. They'll plow together, but you, you take an oxen and, and, and a, another type of an animal, try to put a yoke on them, it's not going to work. They're not going to go in the same direction. They're going to pull and fight against each other. Christians must pay their taxes. Matthew twenty two twenty one. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God. Moral commandment. Christians are to be zealous in doing goods, doing good deeds. Hebrews thirteen fifteen through sixteen. Christians are to suffer honorably. As Christians, 1 Peter 4.19, husbands and wives are to fulfill their marital obligations to one another. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. Children are to obey their, their parents. Slaves are to obey their masters. We don't have the same type of a situation back then, but you have an employer. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for what? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. All of those things that I just read, they're the will of God for us. Here's the thing, though. The moral will of God, the prescriptive will of God, does not connote individualized guidance. Right? God does not tell us what man or what woman to marry. He says, make sure they're a believer. Make sure they're a believer. That's the starting point. And then you would apply other biblical principles. 
do I really want to marry this person? We'll get to biblical decision-making later. God does not tell you what job to take, but some, job, some, job, some jobs are off the table, right? If you're a Christian, he doesn't want you to be a bartender. God does not tell you what car to buy. Don't buy a car that you can't afford. Don't buy a house that you can't afford. Because the borrower is a slave to the lender. God does not tell you where to live. You have a choice. God does not tell you what school to attend. But you better be careful in picking the school that you are going to attend. Because they could wreck your faith in a hurry. So in all of these conditions and many other decisions that we make, especially those that are very significant, we have to follow the practice of what I call good biblical decision-making. Down the road, as you go through this process of making decisions, you may see how God's sovereign will took shape in your life. But you don't have any idea of that in the present. I can look back now. When I left Pennsylvania back in 1985, I didn't have any thought whatsoever of going into the ministry and pastoring a church. None. I came out to California and I didn't really know what was going to happen out here as far as my life was concerned. But now, looking back, I can see the sovereign will of God and how it unfolded and how it eventually led to me being here in this church, standing today and preaching God's word to you. I can tell you all of the things that happened that were uncanny, you would say. I would think they're more than that, where God gave direction but not through some sign or through some voice or anything like that. And that's happening in your life as well. In the meantime, as, as, as we wait for that time to look back and see how God worked, and remember what I said last week, sometimes the sovereign will of God in your life, you'll never know. You'll never see it completely. You'll never get the full picture. But in the meantime, put Proverbs 4.23 at the center of your thinking. And here it is. Keep, which means guard your heart with all diligence. That means above everything else. Guard your heart. For out of it are the issues of life. Everything that you do has to be conformed to the word of God, the prescriptive will of God. And the dominating thing, and I'll close with this, in God's moral will or prescriptive will is that we should live for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. A couple of days ago, I was at the bedside of a man who was very ill and probably going to die soon. And we had a good conversation. It was very pleasant. No nurses interrupted. And, you know, I mean, sometimes they have to, but this just, it just worked out. Just, just him and I. His brother who was there excused himself and we talked probably for 30 minutes. And he looked at me at one point and he said, Pastor, why are we here? What's this life of hardship all about? And I, I shared with him this, this thought. God created us 
God desires that through our life, how we live our life, that we would bring glory to him. That we would point other people to Jesus Christ. And, and I pursued that and discussed it more and more with him. Listen, this is why you are here, especially if you're a Christian. This should resonate with you. God wants you to glorify him in every single thing you do. In every decision that you make. How you live your life. Are you bringing glory to God? Is his name being praised? Is Jesus Christ being exalted as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Lord? Bring it home, folks. Bring it home, right to your, right to your household. Are you glorifying God? This is what God desires from us in fulfilling his commands. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word, which is so clear. We don't have to debate. We don't have to debate these things. We know what you require of us. To do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with, with our God. And that's just part of it. You have given us guidance, Lord. Now we need the power to be able to carry it out. And you have given us the power source, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. So, Lord, help us to be people of the book. Help us to realize that this book, this Holy Word of God, will keep us from sin, and sin will keep us from this book. Help us, Lord, to stay in fellowship with you. Pray to seek wisdom from your word, to fellowship with other believers, to seek wisdom from, from other believers, to come together like this regularly, to come together in prayer with other Christians. Lord, this is what you have ordained. It's sad for me to see Wednesday night so sparsely attended. When, Lord, we, what, what this church needs most going forward is prayer. Prayer for the next person to come and fill this pulpit. So God, bring people out to pray. Help us to pray for one another. To love one another as Christ loved us. And forgave us of all of our sins. In his name I pray. Amen.